Well, if uh, actually all of you will stand again for our scripture reading. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 5, starting in verse 6. Or no, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. Guys, I've had, I was, huh? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Older kids, if you want to make your way to the classrooms. If you can't tell, my brain is a little scattered today, guys. And so one of our values is grace-oriented, right? Right? Let's demonstrate that today. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 6, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that, that, that every single week we, we can trust that your word is effective. I, I thank you that in this sermon that, that Jesus has given, that he's, he's going to, to speak to very real areas of our life and for today, very real areas of our culture. And, and I pray that, that you would just help us to understand what, it's, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and as we think about justice, as we think about caring for the poor and serving the marginalized, noticing and uplifting the oppressed. I pray that you give us a a uniquely Christian perspective on what it means to to love and serve. And so, Father, I I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I, I pray that your spirit would convince us of the better reward that we have from you, so much better than the fickle praises of everyone around us. Would you help our hearts to, to long for that and, and want that more today? Lord, we, we trust you and ask for you to speak to us in this time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it's an oddly shameful thing for me to say in today's culture, but I've kind of already, uh, I've kind of already hinted at it in the past uh, as I've talked to you uh, about the ways that I love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and 90 Day Fiance. I think one thing that's come out is that I love watching TV. Anybody else? Yes? It's a weirdly, I don't know why, but I feel, I feel shameful admitting that. I was actually, I was talking with a, uh, a couple at Icon, I won't name them, um, and they told me, they, they asked me almost as if they, we were like doing a, a drug deal. They were like, it sounds like you guys watch a lot of TV, right? I was like, yeah? She's like, us too, we love it, but I don't know why, we feel so ashamed to admit it. It's like, it's fine, you work hard and you can watch some TV, that's fine. Uh, I, I love watching TV and I, I won't apologize for it. And one of the shows that uh, my wife and I just finished and really enjoyed uh, is a series on Netflix called Inventing Anna. Anybody seen that? Yes, yes, yeah, it's so good. So Inventing Anna uh, is the mostly true story Uh, of a supposed German heiress named Anna Delvey. Uh, And Anna Delvey uh, is a 
uh, is a master at a lot of things, one of which is deceiving people. Uh, and so really in the, in the last, I think it was five or six years, uh, she had moved to New York and she was able to really swindle and lie to some of the most powerful cultural players in New York. And so she came in really as with nothing to her name, and by the time she gets arrested for fraud, she's like living the good life. She almost has a, I think, $40 million loan from Citibank in order to build this art foundation, uh, and so she's, she's really good at swindling, and it's a really, really interesting story about the hypocrite who is Anna Delvey, and then there's, a, there's another show that I plan on watching uh, about uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who started the company Theranos. Anybody, anybody know her or that company? company? Uh, it's another show about the hypocrisy of a person, the, the deceit of a person in order to get people to, to do things. We, we seem to have an odd obsession right now with hypocrites. We, we have all these shows, you know, we, we, we have true crime because we love like, there's a weird part of human beings who like enjoy thinking or at least hearing about murder. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. You should feel ashamed. Just kidding. Just kidding. But now there's these shows coming out that are exploring all of these, uh, all these different hypocrites. And, you know, to, to be a hypocrite in our society is one of the worst things you can be. In, in a culture that, that uh, prizes authenticity above everything else, the worst thing you can be named is a hypocrite. To, to be someone who, who is identified as living a false life, live, living a life on the outside when really on the inside it, it, it doesn't match. Or, or maybe you're, you're living a double life. You, have, uh, you, 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 project, you project all of this maybe religiosity or this uh, cultural affluence when really a, you're, you're living a, a double life. We, we don't want to be a hypocrite in our society. But I, I think I have bad news for you today, <laughs> that in, in this text, and in the text that we're going to, to cover next week, Jesus offers a, a definition of hypocrisy that just might catch all of us in its web. We, we often think of hypocrisy, again, as, as someone who's living a double life. But for Jesus, as we get into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, for him, a hypocrite is also not, not just someone who lives a double life, but someone who does something outwardly for the wrong reasons. That to, to do something, to, to give yourself to something, but not have the right heart motivation for it, is what Jesus would call a hypocrite. And as you can see from that first verse in chapter 6, which is really the, one of the thesis statements for the rest of some of these sections, what is it that they are caring about? What is it that a hypocrite is caring about? Performing acts of righteousness in order to be seen. And so in today's text, Jesus is, just like he has been all throughout chapter five, trying to address our hearts, but, but rather than looking at our vices, like anger and lust and the reasons we get divorced and the reason we hate our enemies, now he's going to look at our supposed acts of righteousness and really put those under a microscope as to whether they're authentic or hypocritical. And so for the disciple of Jesus, it's not just our repentance that must come from the heart, but also our acts of devotion or piety. And so, so for today, we'll, we'll look at Jesus's invitation of real piety as it concerns our, our giving to the needy. 
serving the marginalized. And, and I really think it's important for you to tune into this because, you know, I was, I was talking to someone actually before the sermon that one of the things I really struggled with this week is zeroing in on where this really can hit people in this room right now. Um, I, I'm always trying to think through, like, what does this matter for real people? And, and if I'm honest, I, I, I'm not sure if there's something, if all of us here are hypocrites, but what I do know is that what Jesus has to say today will at least inform the way that you participate and uh, see the, the culture. Today's word seems to be uh, a word against the, the world that we live in today. And so, so let's, let's jump in. I'm going to read the text again so that we can have it in our minds and uh, we'll, we'll jump in to see what Jesus has to say about giving and serving. If you look at verse one with me, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, They have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Three questions I I want to look at this text and and answer. And the first of which is, what in the world does does this have to do with us? How, How is this relevant to us today? So for, for this section of verses, I, I think it's pretty relevant. What, what we see is that Jesus is pushing against this tendency in the human heart to take a need that we see and make it into an opportunity. Jesus apparently saw in his own Jewish culture a tendency to emphasize who you are based off of what you were doing to, to serve the poor and the needy. And so he, he references men and women who would, who would give to the poor, who would do this great act of justice. And I think we can all agree that that's a good thing, but they were doing so in order to be seen as the type of people who give to the poor. That, that, that was their motivation. And man, um, aren't we all glad that over the last 2,000 years, this tendency to take a need and make it into an opportunity Humanity's really grown out of that, right? We, we've, we've really progressed. Aren't we so glad that the needs of the poor are no longer co-opted and used for our own identity creation? No, of course not. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. This is a deep problem today. We live in a culture in terms of our concern for the poor, in terms of our work of solidarity and concern for the oppressed, we live in a culture that operates off of this maxim. Picks or it didn't happen, right? You've got to post. If you care about something, you have to post. There is a deep problem of performative zeal in our culture today. We want to not just do acts of justice, but we feel the need to perform our zeal. Why is that? Why do we do that? Why do we feel the need to do that? Well, I think it's this, this weird mix of, of one good thing with, with one bad thing. I, I'm genuinely happy to see that voices that have been silenced for centuries are, are, are getting their space. We should praise our culture for its concern for the oppressed and marginalized. We should praise that. In fact, 
That's a, that's a reflection of what it means to be made in the image of God. That we see any demonstration of persecution, of oppression, of marginalization, and we say, no, that, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's God's image in us still at work. We all, we all have this kind of core memory of how valuable human beings are as image bearers of God. We intuitively recognize the value of another human being. But the problem where this goes wrong in our culture is that this rush of concern has overlapped with an identity crisis in our culture. We might be able to to recognize our worth or recognize the worth of another human being, but few of us carry a real purpose in our bones, a purpose for which we live. We know that each other is valuable, but we don't know what our own innate purpose is. And so we are, we're left to, to build or construct our own identity. And one of the most commended and sought after identities today is that of the activist, that of the, the ally. Social status, it's so strange. Social status and cultural clout seems to have shifted. The, the best way to get that is no longer found in what you own, but, but rather in what you champion. That's how you achieve social status in our culture today. Culture today. People know themselves best as it relates to any given cause. And like I said, that's, it's a good prompt. It's a good thing that our human intuition toward justice has been reawakened. We should praise that. But it is also a terrible thing, and I'll say sinful thing, to build your identity around capturing the needs of real people in order to turn it into an opportunity for you to have your own good self-image. It's really gross to, to capitalize on the suffering of another human being. And, and, and by the way, this is a problem on both sides. I, as I was preparing this, people are gonna, people are gonna think like, oh, it's just, I'm just hitting against the progressives and the liberals. This is, an, this is a problem on both sides. This, is a, this identity creation, this performative zeal is a problem on both sides. You see it with hashtag activism and progressivism, but also on the right side, you see it in the, what's the number one justice issue that conservatives are concerned about? Abortion. And I'm sadly convinced that that this issue on the conservative side of abortion is so often political theater and performative zeal. It wins votes. It identifies them with a certain group of people that they want to be praised alongside with. Meanwhile, though, I might get in trouble today. Meanwhile, though, Conservatives have garnered such great energy, such great support, such a swell of activism because of a piece of cloth on our face. Instead of, if we took that zeal, if we took that energy that's been able to be swelled because we are personally affected and we started to get to know women who feel unsafe, women who are afraid, what could that do for the justice issue of abortion? If we started actually caring about the kids who are in danger on both sides of the aisle, we are guilty of activism in order to score points. 
We are guilty of caring about things only insofar as it wins us some, some level of social status. And I'm not just, I'm not just hitting on, on you or on our culture today. I, I feel this myself. I felt this myself this week. So my, Monday night, as a staff, we went out and uh, did the, the search and rescue van with Union Gospel Mission. And it was, it was incredible, it was sobering, and uh, we, we wanted to do it because that's, that's, that's one of the things that we're gonna really try to put our energy toward as a church is, is serving with UGM, who's doing the best work on the problem of homelessness in our city. And I remember driving home, it was super late, 12.30 or one in the morning. It was, a, it was a long night, a sobering night. And I remember driving home and thinking about the ways in which, as I've processed through how Icon can partner with UGM, friends, there's been a piece of my heart that just feels like we have to attach onto something so that people, people will think we're one of the good churches. And that night, as I met with and saw and got to serve some of the most needy in our city, some of the most vulnerable in our city, I just thought to myself, Joshua, I'm trying to restrain my language here. You, you, are you serious? Partnering with UGM has been this thing in your head that will win points for ICOM. When there are real people out there suffering from drug addiction, suffering from drug addiction, suffering from starving and not knowing where they're going to get their next meal, they're real people that we're talking about. And my wicked heart thinks that that's something that can just score points for the type of church that Icon is. All of us are this way, friend. All of us are, are so prone to think about the justice issues in our city or in our world and think about our participation in them and what that wins us personally. We should repent from it. We should mourn it. We should see the ways, like I said, how, how gross it is to capitalize on someone else's suffering in order for our identity or self-image to be built up. That's why this matters today. <laughs> but here's, here's another question. Okay, I, I believe now that this is a problem even today. But doesn't the needy still get money? Like, like in, in Jesus' example, the hypocrites give out of a corrupt heart, which is bad, but the poor still get their money, right? What's, what's the big deal? Isn't it better that the marginalized or the needy are served even if that service is coming from a selfish place? What's the big deal, Jesus? At least they're getting money. And I think this question gets us to the core of what Jesus is trying to pinpoint here. Jesus is not trying to get us to stop our concern for the poor or for the marginalized, but is trying to get us to see what he lays out as the better way. Jesus's way of, of serving the poor or oppressed as a means of worship to God rather than your own identity creation. That's what Jesus lays out. A disciple of Jesus should be concerned with justice issues in our city, not just because it provokes that piece of us that's made in the image of God, that's good and right, but ultimately because 
answering and addressing that justice issue is meant to worship God. It's meant to tell something true about who God is. That's what Jesus is trying to to get us to see. And that is, in the end, a better way. Why is that? Well, when acts of justice are tied to your own identity creation and the praise of others, then so often acts of justice are only as strong as the current fad. Your energy for justice is only as strong as the crowd is loud. When the needs of others become an opportunity to gain praise for ourselves, we can only keep going for as long as the reward of others praising us keeps coming in, which means that when the praise drops off or when the the cause or justice issue is not elevated in our culture, then our energy for that justice wanes as well. So yes, in Jesus' example, the poor do get more money even if this person has a corrupt heart. But should giving to the needy ever drop down a couple notches in cultural concern, the poor are left trying to get the attention again, right? When it's no longer prized as much by our culture, when that swell of attention eventually goes down, the poor are left with the heavy burden of getting everyone else's attention again. Do you see what I mean? Talk, talk back to me today, guys. Come on. Yeah, you see what I mean? And we see this in our culture. We tragically see this in our culture. As it relates to police killings of black men and black women, every tragedy comes with a swell in our culture, but that swell recedes and life for the unaffected gets to go back to their normal. And black voices are left with the burden of trying to get people's attention again. Which so often, those voices go unheard until another tragedy happens. If our works of justice are energized by how much our culture is currently talking about something, the marginalized and the oppressed, those who are pushed to the sidelines are the one who pay the heaviest price eventually. The better way is to do it as an act of worship to God. To think about justice in that way. If our acts of justice are done, not in order to win praise from others, but in order to worship God, then we can be steadfast in our proper zeal. We can be steadfast in that. Because we're worshiping a God who is never inattentive to the needs of the needy, of the oppressed, of the marginalized. God's attention never gets taken away from the marginalized. And if we are participating in justice in order to live our life toward that God, then our works of justice, our efforts of justice can be sustained. And we all know that, there is, that justice is never really established without sustained effort, right? That sustained effort will never come when justice is about our identity. It will never happen, which means justice will not be established. But it can be sustained, and history shows that it can be sustained when it is energized by the heart of God. 
If you're going to resist performative zeal, we'll need to focus our attention on who God is and why he deeply cares about justice in our world. It's not a second-rate issue for the God of the Bible. When we focus on him, our works of justice can be more long-lasting, and they might be more quiet. I understand that. You know, I've kind of talked about how the, the, the tendency in our culture to, to post about everything, which is fine. Don't, I'm not saying don't post. But prize the slower and quieter things more, I think. Because ultimately, that's what establishes justice and, and, and pleases God. One of my pastoral coaches used to always say, people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that's true with this conversation around justice. I think, I think we overestimate what we can do with a post and underestimate what we can do with a relationship. Is it slower? Is it quieter? Is it behind the scenes? Yes, but it's the stuff of real, long-lasting justice. We should seek that better way. Jesus' call and concern for justice in his disciples doesn't exclude, even if you, if you see kind of the last verse there, doesn't exclude our human desire for reward. He, he wants us to, to receive a reward, but not from the fickle, waxing and waning praises of others, but rather to receive our reward in a better spot as receiving it quietly from God. That's a... That's a better reward and a better motivation for us to seek justice, for us to actually serve and give our energy. It's a better reward to receive that from God. You know, it's funny, in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God uh, the Father 17 times. 10 times he says it in uh, chapter six, verses one through 17. 10 of those times. What he's trying to get across is that all of these acts of piety should be coming from a place of being a child of God, of having an identity as a child of God, having a father in heaven who cares, who sees. And when you see him smiling at you, pleased with the things that, as you are caring about and concerned for the things that concern his heart, that is a better reward That is a better reward than retweets. It's a better reward to see the smile of a father. That's what what helps us feel as a child. I remember whenever I was 13, uh, with my dad and my older brother, we had to uh, replace an engine in my brother's first truck, this old, small, red Toyota. Uh, And I was always really good mechanically and and better than than my brother was, which I've always taken a lot of pride with. And I remember, you know, I was 13, and we were working on this car, working on this engine, and I didn't care about that, you know? But I really enjoyed it. You know why I really enjoyed it? It's because my father really enjoyed it. (laughs) My father really loved it, and I got to get commended by my dad as I participated in something that he cared about. And that's kind of like what Jesus is talking about here, except that we actually do care about what we're doing. 
That's the reward that Jesus invites us into, is the smile, the pleasure of a father who sees us participating with him in things that excite his heart and that are concerning for his heart. That's a, that's a better reward. The place of identity, the place of, you see, all of this performative zeal and things like that, performative activism, activism it's all about achieving an identity. Jesus here is saying, receive your identity. You have an identity that you can receive from your father as you quietly, not for the praise of others, but for the pleasure of your father, do works of justice. Jesus is calling us here to a, a better identity, to live from a place of identity in Christ rather than identity in the praises of others. We can count on the pleasure of our Father because Jesus Christ has given us a safe place that we don't have to work for, that we don't have to perform for. And that can promote peace in our own hearts and actually give us a better energy, a better purpose to promote, to promote peace in an unjust world. Friends, this, this is what Jesus calls us to, to have our identity securely rooted in Jesus such that our hearts receive our identity and from there, we can really get to work. So let, let's, let's resist the parts of our heart that want to perform our zeal. Let's get to real work of justice, caring about it because our God does. Let, let, let's ask him for that now. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us stronger desire for justice and for service in our city and in our culture that can actually be sustained because it's sustained by, by the pleasure that comes into your heart. You are a God of shalom and you intend to have justice rain down, fall down like mighty rushing waters. That is your heart toward this world. God, I pray that you would give us, that you would capture our hearts with the vision of what you desire to make this world back into and that that vision would be so wonderful to us that we get to work in justice. We get to work promoting peace and equality, not because of what it gets us in the praises of others, but because of the better reward of your smile and fellow image bearers of God, given the right dignity and worth and equality that you have given them. God, make us a church that protects that dignity, that seeks that dignity, that works for that dignity, and does not let it go when our culture does. Does not let the task and the vision go when our culture gets quiet. Give us the grace of endurance as we firm, our, firm ourselves in our identity in Jesus and make us the workers of justice in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, 
we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.